Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. I am going to put a word on the screen, and I want you to think about what comes to your mind. I want you to take a couple of minutes to turn to someone around, a couple people around you, and, and share what, uh, what thoughts this brings to your mind. So here we go. That's the word. Security. Security. Take a minute or two to share with people around you what comes to your mind when you see the word security. Well, a lot of what we deem as normal in America revolves around an attempt to build security, right? At night, we lock the doors to our homes, our apartments. We lock the doors to our cars. Maybe we purchase insurance uh, in case of catastrophe. We put passwords on our computers and our tablets and our phones. Perhaps we purchase some kind of protection plan to uh, prevent us from uh, being victims of identity theft. Uh, We start saving money so that there will be uh, security in our retirement years. Maybe we join a community of people so that we can feel like we belong. We, it, a lot of what we are doing all through our lives is trying to become secure. But ultimately, what happens is that none of those things on their own can make us feel completely secure. And they also, if they're earthly things, they, they're bound to fail. Something is going to happen. We never know if we're going to wake up one morning and get rear-ended on the freeway on our way to work or suddenly become ill or unexpectedly be laid off from our jobs or find out that someone else is trying to use our credit cards. I know the last one from recent experience. (laughs) You know, the last three weeks, three weeks, 21 days, I have attended or led five memorial services. And three of those five were people that I have known for all or almost all of my 64 years of life. People that were just there, right? As you grew up, you just expected them to be there. They're not there anymore. And that can be unsettling. Everything changes in life. People change. Jobs change. Finances change. Our bodies change. Everything changes in life, which means that it's unwise to base our security in earthly things. But against the the cloudy backdrop of a society that doesn't know much about security or stability, 
we have a book in the in the Bible, many books in the Bible, but the book that we're going through right now at Harvest is the New Testament letter of, of Hebrews, and I invite your attention there. Our passage today, Hebrews chapter 6, as we keep preaching through this this book is Hebrews six thirteen to 20, and it shines like a bright ray of sunshine against that dark cloud of insecurity, and it shows us, it points us in another direction. It points us towards eternal reality. So I, I want to read this passage to you, Hebrews 6, beginning at verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And today as we're going to walk through this passage, we are going to discover where security for the believer in Jesus Christ is based. Now, let me remind you what comes just before this passage. Again, we're in a series going through Hebrews. We've been going through it for a few months now. Uh, we'll take a break for a couple of weeks. Next Sunday will be Vacation Bible School Sunday, and the focus will be there. Then there'll be one more week off of that, and then we'll, Lord willing, dive back into Chapter 7 um, uh, at the beginning of August. But in this section, in these verses right before, this paragraph that started at chapter 5, verse 11, the writer started out with a confrontation. You are spiritually immature, he said. By this time, you should be teaching others, but but now you need to go back to the basics. And and so he he is exhorting them to, to grow up, to press on, to mature. And after saying that... Then in verses 4 to 8 of chapter 6, he issues a warning. It's like, be careful. Because there are some people who might be just similar to you that are in real danger. These are people that have experienced a lot of spiritual things. And we said last week, it's dangerous to experience uh, uh, God's revelation, what he's revealed to us, but fall short of being truly saved, or what the Bible calls regeneration. And that's what the 
the, the primary group that was in view in Hebrews chapter 6 in those verses was, it showed all of the things they had experienced. They had come so close to becoming true Christians. But the mark of a true Christian is that the faith that is saving faith lasts. And they persevere in that faith through their life. They're not perfect. They're up and downs, ups and downs, of course. But there's a perseverance that is true of a true believer. And so while he warns against that possibility, because he doesn't know every single individual in his audience, he then mitigates and he says to to these guys, uh, but I have confidence in you. I believe different things about you. I believe that you indeed are Christians and your life and faith and your perseverance in faith is showing that and going to show that. So all of this uh, in, in these last few sections has been focusing on what people need to do to grow up. How people need to mature. And it's valuable. It's good. It's God's word. There's a potential problem with that. When you start focusing on that and you start focusing on what we need to do, you need to make sure it's set in the full context of who God is and what he has already done. And so as I set the context for the verses for today, I word it this way. After focusing in chapter 5, 11 to 6, 12 on human actions and responsibilities, which can lead to insecurity, the writer of Hebrews highlights what God has provided as a basis for Christian perseverance, and that leads to security. So the warnings are legitimate, the encouragements are legitimate, but even as those come, The writer says, hey, let me remind you, let's focus on where security comes from. For the Christian, let me remind you what it's all about and where it comes from. And so he said, for instance, and this will show you how it goes in, that section before verse 12 closed with this. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. That was that last urging to do it. Well, how do we do that? How do, how do we persevere? How do we know? How can we be sure? Where can we find security? And that's the question I ask today, and we'll let the text answer it in three ways. What is the basis for Christian security? And the first one is God's promise. The basis is not ourselves, how we feel or how we've been doing recently spiritually, the basis for Christian security is God's promise. You see there, verse 12. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Watch verse 12 again that I just read. Verse 12 leads into verse 13 because he talked about those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Remember, he's writing to people who were Jewish in origin. They were Jewish background. They had become followers of Christ. And so in their day, when the words were written about somebody having faith and patience and inheriting God's promises, who would they think about (laughs) 
they would think back to some of the great characters in the Old Testament. Specifically, they would have thought of Abraham. Abraham, for them, was the greatest example of someone who had persevered through faith. And so he's going to bring out a discussion of Abraham. Here they are, these readers, the original readers, they're probably being tempted to be discouraged and and not to persevere themselves. And so the writer's going to say, well, let's look at Abraham. Let's look at someone who did. And he says... God, since there was no one else to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I'll surely bless you and give you many descendants. And the the question is, well, when did God do that? When did God say, you know what, I'm just going to swear by myself? It's interesting. You've heard it said many times growing up probably and talking to different people. Maybe you've said it. You ever heard anybody say, well, I swear to God. Like they're telling you something, they're like, they really want to make it really true, right? And they say, I I, I swear, or I swear to God. You're looking at me like you never heard that. (laughs) I swear you're looking at me that way. No, just kidding. (laughs) So God took an oath. God made a promise, and he swore by himself. Now, when did he do that? In Genesis chapter 12, we're not going to take the time to turn back there at the moment. Yet, But in Genesis chapter 12, God came to this man named Abraham, and even though he had no children, even though his wife could not have children, he said, looked at him, Abraham, I, I'm going to bless you. I'm not only going to give you one son. I, I am going to m- bless you so much that there will be so many descendants that come through your line and all the earth is going to be blessed through you. He made this promise to him in Genesis 12. It was repeated when he came to Shechem and on several occasions afterwards. But in a story which I'm assuming most of us are familiar with, God did give him that son named Isaac. And the son that he gave him in his old age, God in a few years said to him, Abraham, I I want you to go. And sacrifice Isaac to me. But you go up on the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. This is such a poignant, difficult story. But Abraham, we learn from the New Testament, believed all along that God could raise him from the dead if that was what was required. Abraham went. He had faith. He obeyed. He got to the point of he was raised the knife ready to make the sacrifice and God stayed his hand. God stopped it and there was a ram in the thicket that he could sacrifice. And when that happened, we pick up in Genesis chapter 2 or chapter 22 verse 15 with these words. So right after that happens, Genesis 22:15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, here it is, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, and we'll pick up the the, the other verse in, in a minute. But there are at least two reasons why Abraham's journey is uh, cited here. The first one is that in making his promise to Abraham, the Lord swears by himself. It's, it's an, such an unusual way of saying something. God said it. I swear by myself. 
And the second reason is that this promise of all these descendants is tied in to Abraham's obedience in faith, being willing to sacrifice the progenitor of those descendants, Isaac. He said in verse 17, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now notice why Abraham was such an appropriate model to give to these writers or these readers of Hebrews and still to us today. We look back at verse 15. And so Abraham waited, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Abraham waited 75 years after God promised him that they would have a son. And then he did come true. He, but even after waiting all that time, he was asked to make the sacrifice. But it's the patient waiting that he's talking about. The first basis for Christian security is the promise of God. God makes promises. The second one is closely tied to it. We've already started talking about the oath, and that's God's oath. So we've got God's promise. We also have God's oath. And the writer makes this statement in verse 16 explaining what it's like at that time. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. So in the ancient Mediterranean world, if you went to court, there was a certain way you could give testimony. And there was a way that you could swear and the way you could take an oath. And there were a couple things that were true of those oaths. The first one is this. They required you had to appeal to someone that was greater than you. I know in courts today, people swear, right? They go into court. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. And then sometimes another witness or witnesses are brought forward. But those other witnesses don't necessarily need to be greater than you. But in the ancient world, if you were going to bring somebody else along, you needed someone that was greater than you to give credence to your story. They required, that's what the text says, people swear by someone greater than themselves. And when you did that, if you were able to bring another witness who was greater than you, your legal case was assured. Look what the rest of it says. It it puts an end to all argument. So if you do have to go to court, get you a witness and get somebody who's greater than you. Call the governor, call a senator, call someone to stand in for you. That's, that's, he's just setting that scenario. That's what happened in the courts of that day. But notice what God does. God accommodates, as it were, something they would understand, verse 17, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. Now, let me ask you all all a question. This is a tough question. This is a yes or no question. In order to really be true to his word, 
if you didn't read this scripture, if we didn't have this scripture for us, did God have to make an oath? Yes or no? No. I mean, God is just going to tell the truth, right? Because he is the truth. He didn't have to do that. But he did it. And that's what the text is saying. And he showed it, or he did it to show that his unchanging purpose, his will is not going to change. And he's going to bring this oath about. The original Greek word that's used there was used in wills and contracts to refer to terms or conditions that could not be annulled. When God signs the contract, there's no changing. There's no due diligence period in which he might change his mind and then back out. If God makes his oath, that is it. And, it, and who, who is he making it clear to? It's, it's the heirs of what was promised. Now, of course, we know that he promised Abraham, but now Abraham has some heirs, some people who come afterwards. Hmm, I wonder who that might be. Well, if you read Genesis or Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, Paul is saying to believers, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Read the rest of that sentence out loud with me. And heirs according to the promise. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ today? Are you a Christian? You are an heir of the promise that God made to Abraham. Verse 18, um, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. So God did this to encourage us. He did it to assure Abraham. He did it so that we know we would know that we could trust him, but he did it to encourage us, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us. Now let's think about for a minute why he would use language like that. By the way, there's a lot of hard language in this passage, right? I admit it. <laughs> This, this is not an easy passage to read, but as we walk through it, hopefully it's, it's, it's coming to light what God was trying to do with it. In the Old Testament, there were six cities that were called cities of refuge. They were, there were three on each side of the Jordan. And here's what a city of refuge did. Uh, there were all kind of rules and regulations and the laws about what would happen to a person if they murdered someone or hurt someone. But there was a difference between murdering someone intentionally and murdering or killing someone accidentally. And a lot of times the avengers would take vengeance on, on murderers. So the cities of refuge were set up so that let's say you were out working in the field and you had a partner with you and you were swinging an instrument and you accidentally hit them and they died. Apart from the cities of refuge, you, your own life could be in danger because the family of the person who died could come after you. There would be no way of knowing for them that it was on purpose or it was accidental. So you would flee to the city of refuge and you would run and you would run because you knew that once you crossed that city limits, once you got inside those city gates, once you were there, you were safe. 
And I imagine you'd be running and looking around and seeing if, if some of the family members had heard and if they were coming out to get you. But once you got inside there, they couldn't touch you. We had our students sharing. It reminds me, when I was a youth pastor, we played capture the flag a lot. Do you guys play it? And there was always, there was always the line that was your, your side. And, and you were trying to capture the flag on the other side. But as long as you were on your side, nobody could bother you. But anytime you would go on the other side, if they tagged you, they got you and they would take you to jail. And it would be very common to be like sneaking in there at night or something, trying to find that flag. And here they come after you and you run, 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 run. You get over, you get over the line and you're safe. Well, the cities of refuge, You were fleeing to that city of refuge in order to be safe. And then, of course, the elders of the city would investigate. And if they determined that it was manslaughter, that was not intentional murder, they would allow you to live in that city until the death of the high priest. And then you were free to go back uh, home. People who are Christians... It's like we have fled to a city of refuge. It's like we have danger. We have danger of being separated from God. We have danger of paying for our own sins. We have danger of, of, of experiencing eternal judgment. And it's like we don't want that to happen. And so we flee somewhere. We go somewhere where we can be completely safe, where nobody can bother us, where sin can't uh, uh, destroy us and Satan can't destroy us. And you know where that is? That's in Christ. It's the words to that great hymn, How Firm a Foundation you saints of the Lord, is laid for his faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to you that he said? To you, you know the next few words, who for refuge to Jesus have fled. That's what a Christian is, someone who has fled to for refuge to Jesus Christ. Jesus is our eternal refuge and no one can snatch us out of his hand. Now, verse 18 says there are two things in which it is impossible for God to lie. I think that refers to his promise and his oath and that is greatly encouraging. Doesn't, encourage, doesn't it encourage you today to know that You may have been lied to by humans, but God will never lie to you. (laughs) Numbers 23, 19 says that God is not human, that he should lie, not a human being, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? So God didn't need to make this oath to ensure that he would tell the truth. He is fully truthful. He just did it for our benefit. So we've got God's promise, we've got God's oath, and now the third basis for Christian security is found in verses 19 and 20, and that's God's Son. God's Son. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. You know what, in America today... There's a lot of hopelessness and a lot of despair. 
Gallup reports that 18% of American adults, that's more than one out of six, say that they are depressed or receiving treatment for depression. According to the CDC, two years ago in 2021, more than 12 million Americans seriously contemplated suicide. Three and a half million planned a suicide attempt and 1.7 million actually attempted suicide. Suicide was among the top nine leading causes of death for those age 10 to 64. And it was the second leading cause of death for people ages 10 to 14 and 20 to 34. Over 48,000 people died in America in 2021 by taking their own life. That's one death every 11 minutes. A professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and the editor of the Harvard Guide to Psychiatry noted the explosion of hopelessness and depression in our society. And he attributed it to the undercutting of spiritual resources. Listen to what he said. Some say that our culture has forsaken its spiritual roots. That we live in an overtly secular society without even the pretense of spiritual values. Many young people today feel that their cultures fail to provide answers to questions of purpose and meaning and destiny. We fail, they feel, to provide some reason of hope. By the way, he wrote those words in 1996. What would he say today about hopelessness in our society? But again, we're going to look for that bright ray of sunshine found in Hebrews chapter 6. And the biblical worldview is this, that life is about much, much more than what you can see and touch and taste and smell. It's about the truth of Jesus Christ, his son, who he is, the hope, the anchor that he is for this life and for the next one. Verse 19 says it. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Now, in ancient Greek literature, the image of an anchor appeared many places to refer to just stability. So Plutarch, who was a philosopher that came about 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus, suggested that a person who gives in to life's urges has no more stability than the hook of an anchor that is found in loose sand. Philo called virtue a stabilizing factor, and he used the image of being having an anchor in a firm spot. Hebrews 6, 19 compares the hope we have in Jesus as Christians to that of an anchor. In other words, our hope in Christ provides safety and security, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's the reliable basis for living. In fact, the verse continues, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That, of course, is referring to that place in the temple, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where there was a curtain and only the, the high priest could go once a year behind there 
only once a year. The average, uh, the average, uh, worshiper of God couldn't just say, I want to be in God's presence now. I want to, I want to be close to God right now. I think I'll go into the most holy place. No, it was once a year. There was this huge barrier that kept people out. And yet, Jesus went into the very presence of God when he died on the cross, when he was buried, when he rose again. Of course, when he died, the the curtain in the temple was torn in two, and it symbolized the fact that now all of God's people can come into the presence of God all the time. We have immediate access to God. He was our forerunner. He was the one who went before. Our hope as believers is not in money, it's not in recognition, it's not in an easy life, it's not in jobs, it's not in success, it's not in houses, it's not in relationships, it is in Jesus and what he has done. Who he is and what he has done. Now this term only appears, forerunner, only appears here in the New Testament. It's a rare word in the Bible, period. But outside of the New Testament in Greek literature, it was used like of a small party of soldiers that would would be sent to explore the way ahead so the rest of the army could come. And that's what's happening here. Jesus went first, and now we can follow him. So what is God's word for us this morning? What is he saying to us this morning? Security for the believer is based on the kind of God he is and promises he makes. That's where our security is. It's in Christ. It's in the kind of God that he is. It's in the kind of promises that he makes. And I, I want to start wrapping up by just asking, so how should we respond to this? How should we respond to this today? And I want to give you three suggestions. First of all, depend on Christ for salvation and perseverance. I don't know where you are today. I hope you're not depending on the church or religion or being baptized or confirmed or being a good person, turning over a new leaf. I hope you're willing and you're already at the spot of saying, you know what? (laughs) We sang it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I am going to depend on Christ. He is the one who saves. He is the one who keeps. And if you've never gotten to that spot, today's a great day to give up, to stop depending on yourself and say, Lord, I'm depending on you. That's what saving faith is all about. Secondly, praise God for the salvation and perseverance he brings. He brings salvation. He brings perseverance to us. Praise God. This is a day to worship Him. It's a day to give Him glory for who He is and what He's done. And then thirdly, find security and stability in the God of promises. I want to mention a couple pitfalls that we need to avoid when we come to a passage like this. I read these in a commentary by George Guthrie, and I thought these these are worth bringing out. He said, first, don't use God's promises as an attempt to coerce him. And this is what happens in kind of what we would call health and wealth preaching. So it would go like this. Somebody would stand up and say, God can never lie. Right, right. God is always faithful to his promises. Right, right. And then they, they, they start coercing God by saying, well, 
God has promised you health and God has promised you cars and God has promised you money. God has promised you this and that. And God can never lie. Right, right. That's not what this is talking about. When we talk about being anchored in God's promises, we're not talking about that. Second thing is when we talk about hope, we're not talking about the way the world uses the word hope. The world uses the word hope to be like, oh, I just, with everything in me, I'm just trying to muster up enough positive feeling that hopefully something will happen. Now, Christian hope is grounded on the truth of God that's been revealed to us. It's a totally different thing. Hebrews gives us several warnings. The way this passage, the way this letter is written, there's a lot about Christ, then there's a, a warning. And there's more about Christ than a warning. And there are five of them. And so far, we've you could kind of summarize the ones we've been to so far. Chapter 2, don't drift from the word. Chapter 3 into 4, don't doubt the word. Now, in the one we just covered, 5 up to, to 6.20, don't get dull towards the word. Rather, focus on the anchor. <laughs> That's how you keep that from happening. So when I, not long after I graduated from college... One of my best friends uh, in college was getting married up in New York. And so he invited me to fly up to be in the wedding. So I flew up. He lived in Buffalo, flew there. The place we were going uh, uh, for the wedding, Niagara Falls, was not not too too far away or out of the way. I had never been, so we... We actually went to Niagara Falls. It's one of the most amazing places I've ever seen in my life. It's just incredibly powerful to stand there at the top of those falls and see all of that water go over. The Niagara River plummets down like 180 feet into the American and the Horseshoe Falls. But there's a spot further upstream... Um, I mean, there, there are all these violent rapids, but if you keep going further upstream, there's, there's a place just before the, where the Welland River dumps into the Niagara. There's a pedestrian walkway across that river, and there are some, there's signs on the buoys there at the thing uh, for boats, because it's safe for boats to be at that part. But, but the signs ask a question, do you have an anchor? And the second question is, do you know how to use it? <laughs> Church, I have good news for us today. In Christ, we have an anchor for our soul. Let's rest on him. Let's hope in him. Let's not look to other things or other people or other situations. Let's look, let's look to him. Security for the believer is based on the kind of God he is and the promises he makes. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.